like literally pulled up and had made it back just this morning, like right at 11, and so appreciate those who filled in uh, with teaching, preaching as I was away, thank you very much, grateful for that, and this morning we'll be looking again in Colossians chapter 3, so look with me please, Colossians 3 and verse 12 is where we will begin our reading this morning through verse 17. Give you just a moment to turn there with me if you would please, Colossians 3 verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be ye thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the provision of Christ and, Lord, the abundant mercy and love that you have bestowed unto us through him. As we open the word of God this morning, we just ask that we might have clarity of thought in communicating your truth. Lord, may we receive from your word that which is needed in each of our lives for your glory to be revealed continually in and through us. We recognize, Lord, that we are merely vessels, earthen vessels, but within us is this heavenly treasure of Christ. And may it be that our lives uh, demonstrate the beauty and glory of Christ as we live each day. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that is ours and for your uh, loving kindness towards us, Lord, that which is undeserved, and yet we are eternally grateful for that which we've received. So we ask as we open the Word of God this morning that you might, again, help us, Father, as your Spirit would use your Word in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. We're aware that we need to be sanctified through your truth, and so, Father, we pray that you might do just that this morning. Thank you again for the time. Uh, you've given us this morning and as well the time away this past week. We thank you for safe travels and we pray for those as well that are away from us this morning that you will bless and keep them safe as well. Bring them back safely to us in fellowship and may you encourage every heart of every individual believer gathered in this place this day to your glory and honor. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> we are going to pick up somewhat where we left off on our last time together a couple of weeks ago now and of course uh, I want to uh, do somewhat of an overview again or a re uh, review to bring us back to this portion of the text so we have an understanding of where we are and the, and the significance of it in relation to what's already been stated. And we've seen already that because these believers at Colossae had been crucified with Christ, as indicated, of course, in the first verse of this third chapter when Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ. And so <clears throat> when he speaks of being risen with Christ, he, of course, is saying that they were first buried, dead and buried with him, and now they are risen again, raised with him in this new life, this new man, this resurrected life. And so because they had been crucified with Christ and risen with him, Paul then provides this exhortation to these Colossian believers that they put off, he begins by again saying, put off the old works of the old man and to put on that which pertained to the new man. So we saw in verses 8 and 9 previously in our studies, Paul says to put off. He said, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, 
filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So to put off, as we have seen, it means to put away or remove, and he's particularly speaking of the filthy garments of the flesh, that all these things are to be removed, to be, to be shrugged off, to be cast aside, if you will. Then he says to put on, in verses 10 and 11, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, we have seen in these studies through these particular verses that statement or the use of the, the verb have put on is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which speaks of a historical act, something that's already been done or accomplished, while the statement which is renewed in the same verses is in the present tense, which implies this continuous act or a continual act. And so as Paul further explained in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, which we won't take time to turn there, but he states, the work is completed in the inner man, which results in a continuous outward change. So we are to put off all that pertains to the old man, this old nature that we carry with us, of course, that we still contend with, but yet it is dead in Christ. So we are to acknowledge and recognize that it is dead and crucified with him. Then we are to put on the new man, living in that truth of God's provision, appropriating that provision of Christ, which is really to put on Christ. As he said, Christ is all and in all. Speaking, of course, not to universalism, but rather that all of those who are believers in Jesus Christ, that Christ is in all of them. But here's the real catch here. Paul is saying, if Christ is truly in you, then Christ is everything to you. Christ is in all, or is all, and in all. So he's speaking of this truth. Beginning in verse 12, we find Paul's exhortation to live the resurrected life provided by God in Jesus Christ in verses 12 through 14, which we will not read again at the moment. But he says to put on bowels of mercies, that's inward compassion, a heart of compassion, kindness, which is goodness, humbleness of mind, humility, meekness or gentleness, long-suffering, which is patience and forbearance, Bearing one another, enduring one another is what he's saying. By the way, it's an interesting statement, of course, because again, we must be mindful that as believers in Christ, um, that we, we love because we have been loved. We love God because he loved us, but we also love others because God has loved us. But we are to endure one another, meaning that there are moments where, obviously, where we, we rub each other wrong. We, we do. It's just a matter of fact of life. But we are to endure one another, and that is not a negative connotation to the word, meaning it's as though having to just put with someone, but rather the implication would be that we are to be reminded, as the next statement says, when he says forgiving one another as Christ forgave you, we are to forgive freely. But the only way we're going to do that is as we are enduring one another and as we are forgiving one another. And that's part of endurance, by the way. Uh, if, if, you ever, if there's ever contention that exists between two individuals, whether they be family physically speaking, or whether it be husband-wife or, or, or family otherwise, or whether it be within the household of faith or the family of God or the church body, the only way that we will faithfully endure one another and the contentions that are, arise from time to time is that we forgive one another freely. Because as soon as we begin to, again, hold to that which we believe has been wrongfully done to us, which many times may be the case, if we are not freely forgiving one another, then we will become bitter toward one another. We will not endure one another well. And in some cases, just put up with one another, which is not enduring at all. But rather, we are to do so patiently. 
Uh, we are to that doesn't just simply mean get through them, but we are to patiently, with joy, endure, recognizing God is working something. And so we are to forgive one another. And then, of course, he concludes this with charity, which is love or agape, the word agape translated love in, in, our, in our Bibles. So as we continue this morning to unpack these verses concerning Paul's exhortation to put on this new man, we once again need to consider the last verse we examine examined during our study of this uh, passage a few weeks back now. Verse 14, it literally lays the groundwork for the following verses of our study this morning in which Paul builds up to, uh, builds upon this foundation to explain the new man that we are to put on. So he says in verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And so this charity or this agape love it's the same as God's love, which is defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's this love that is the bond, it is the sinew, it is the fetter, it is that which ties together and is that which, in, which demonstrates maturity and unity. So as we live and dwell in the love of God, not only that we receive, but the love of God which then we reciprocate, which we demonstrate to others, then there's going to be a sense of or an evidence of maturity and growth and foundation and truth that is going to be present. And remember, love is interesting because we think of love and we often view it only as though it is this emotional experience or this emotional sense that we feel or that we may experience ourselves. But love is truly not that at all. Others would say, well, love is an action and it's a verb. And it's true that it is an action, but it's more than that alone as well. Actually, love is commitment when you truly think of it. For instance, think of it like this for a moment. God the Father was committed in his love to us. And he was going to redeem mankind. That's a commitment. To the point that he slew his own son. Jesus Christ was committed to the purpose of the Father. He loved the Father such that he was committed to the purpose of the Father in that he humbled himself even unto death. This is commitment. This is not just some action alone. Neither is it a feeling or an emotion. Recall with me, if you will, in the Garden of Gethsemane when our Lord says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And if you think about those words, Jesus is not saying, I want to get out of this. Lord, if you can, Father, if you can let me out, just let me out. What he is saying is, my flesh does not want to suffer this. However, I am willing to die to self and the flesh, that the Father's purpose and will be accomplished and perfected. And it's in that, in that commitment to the will and purpose of the Father that Christ literally lays his life down upon the cross and gives his life up. And so when we think of this agape love, in 1 Corinthians 13, we see this love is defined for us and described for us and Paul writes to the Corinthian believers concerning the schism that was in the body, this division that was existent. And then he talks about how he gives this example of this love. And again, in, in three verses, I believe, in the beginning of that chapter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we possess charity. If you possess charity, it doesn't say if you do charity or if you act in charity or if you, act, or if you display charity or demonstrate charity, but saying if you possess, if any man have charity, that is possessive. And he's saying, if you have this love of God in you, then, of course, this is defining that love you received. But it also is that to which we are to examine our own lives because the simple truth is that we do not measure up to such love. And we're not even capable of measuring up to such love. But 
We can't allow this same love to be demonstrated through us. For instance, when the scripture it states here in uh, Colossians chapter 3, again, when he says in verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Well, in truth, there is not one of us capable in and of our own power or ability to forgive another as Christ has forgiven us. We do not possess that ability. However, God is able to forgive through us as we are reminded that he has forgiven us freely and we are to forgive others freely. We can forgive because we have been forgiven in the power of his forgiveness, not in our own. And so, again, we don't measure up to God's love. We don't measure up to God's ability of forgiveness. And, and to prove that to you, say, well, I think that I forgive and God's forgiven me and I forgive others. But remember something. God has forgiven you and he is the perfect father, the sinless one, the almighty eternal God, the one who created us and all that is. And he has forgiven us. We don't have that capability because we are not perfect and we have wronged others ourselves. But God has never wronged anyone. And the forgiveness that we have received is the forgiveness of God in Christ, which we are then to then reciprocate or demonstrate to others as we live in the truth of that forgiveness. And so the work is completed in the inner man, which results again in this outward continuous change, this reformation, if you will. So as we continue to consider these verses in verse 14, how it is the groundwork, we see that it is the bond of perfectness, or if you wanted to say perfection, which means it is the sinew, it is the evidence, it is the, the fetter that binds us together, which is an evidence of maturity and unity within the body of Christ. And so we are bound together by the Spirit of God. We are bound together by the love of God. We are bound together by the grace of God. We are bound together by the forgiveness of God. And so all of this binds us together. And when we understand that, to that, what Paul is saying, put on charity, live in the truth of this new man, put on charity, which is the bond of perfection. It is the bond which ties us together, this love of God in Christ, and it also, therefore, is the evidence of the maturity of the believer in Christ who recognizes these truths. So we see the charity of which Paul speaks, again, is the evidence of one who is alive and resurrected in Christ, living in the truth of the new man. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said to his disciples, and, and again, to show you this truth, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. So what is the difference here between the old commandment and the new commandment? He says a new commandment. What is the old commandment? The old commandment is that we love our enemies, our neighbors as ourselves. But he does not say that here. Now we potentially have the ability, or at least much more so of the ability, to love others as we love ourselves. I would venture to say in most cases that is not achieved either. Because if we want to be honest, we love ourselves a whole lot usually. We have a lot of love for us individually. I have a lot of love for me. You have a lot of love for you. We really do. And we may not want to admit to that or confess it, but it's true. But nonetheless, it is much easier for me to demonstrate a love for someone else similar to the manner in which I love myself. What is much more difficult and impossible 
is for me to love someone else as Christ has loved me. Again, the selfless love. And so we see that he says, this is the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. So how again do we do that? Well, it's simply by submitting to the truth of this resurrected life, this new man in Christ that he, remember because we are dead. Did, did Paul not clearly establish that already? We are dead. And he says that those who are crucified with Christ or those who are risen with Christ have crucified the flesh and the lust thereof. Remember that? We are dead. But yet Christ is our life. And so as Christ lives in and through us, we can then demonstrate that love as his love is being manifested in and through us towards others, towards himself and towards others. So there's evidence and benefits of such unity provided by the Spirit through this love that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Those who are living the resurrected life in this new man in our Lord Jesus. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your heart. So that all this is now being built upon the entirety of the chapter, and even further back, of course, but specifically verse 14. And now moving on to verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. With the presence of God's Spirit, there is unity, there is peace, there is love, and there is joy. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul wrote, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So the question is not concerning the presence of God's peace here. Well, first, I guess, truthfully, it is. Because if someone does not have the peace of God, it's because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But speaking to believers in Christ, the question is not concerning the presence of the peace of God, for his peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul exhorts the church in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So the command is by the presence and unity provided by the Holy Spirit, the presence of this peace provided by the presence of the Spirit of God, and then we are to allow God's peace to rule and control our hearts. Melek commented, Peace is a common expression in the Pauline literature. It occurs regularly in prayers and the opening salutations of Paul's epistles. When employed, it carries with it all of the meaning of the Hebrew word shalom, a general sense of well-being and prosperity. Now here's where, here's where it makes a lot of sense. It is, the, it is the quiet disposition which arises when people are committed to the lordship of Christ in their midst. You know what provides the believer's unity? It's the Spirit of God. But what does the Spirit of God do? He testifies to the preeminence and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this presence of God's Spirit Peace is a result of the presence of the Spirit of God as one is living in the unity provided by the Spirit of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, he goes on to say, To the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. So we are to be thankful that the Lord has made us one body and provided His peace, His unity, 
and his love by the presence of his spirit. And Paul further explained the truth of this unity in his epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, we'll read part of this again. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Within these three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians 4, the adjective one, as we've just read, is used seven times. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and then he goes on to say how there is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, or one God and one Father. And the peace of God, as we see even evidenced in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 4, or 3 through 6 of Ephesians 4, the peace of God eliminates all the hostility and the enmity between God and men as we've previously seen in this chapter. The peace of God eliminates this in chapter 5 of Romans in verse 1. We see the scripture says, speaking of our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the reality of it. Men, and, and this has been a time-tested experiment that is proven to fail every single time eventually. If one does not have peace with God, he will never be able to achieve peace with men. And that's been proven through history. There may be times of peacefulness, but eventually it all erupts into wars and battles. And that's on a personal level, but also when it comes to nations, the world itself as a whole. And so we understand that the most important thing, as Paul pointed out, one concerning peace is that as one who's been justified by God, and justification is that God has not only taken care of my sin. Remember, if you look at reconciliation, these are, what, these are I'm mentioning two of the components of this great work of salvation, and they each one have different meanings. There's, there's, there's different uh, elements to each of these, if you will, or characteristics. And reconciliation, or to reconcile, is to remove the hostility that existed. So when we've been reconciled to God, that means that God has eradicated all of the hostility that was present due to our own sins, due to our own sinful nature, that God removed that hostility in the person of Christ. Again, Christ slain on the cross, God removed the enmity that was existent between us and Him. But then when you come to justification, it's not that God has removed the hostility, but it's that God has put us into a right relationship with himself. So it's not just God took away the problem, but God took away the problem through reconciliation in Christ and now has justified us in Christ, meaning that now we are in a relationship with God that is a proper relationship because his son's relationship is proper with him. And because we are in Christ, again, the beauty of this in justification and reconciliation is that as long as Christ remains in good standing with the Father, then every single believer in Jesus Christ remains in good standing with the Father as well. And if that is not true, then you are hopeless because you can never 
gain a proper relationship with God and you can never maintain a proper relationship with God. Even to prove that further in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, who were without sin at that time, what did they do? They sinned. They could not maintain that relationship with God the Father. So it is in Christ alone that this is achieved. The peace of God eliminates not only the hostility or the problem between God and men, but the peace of God as well eliminates the enmity between mankind. Again, Ephesians 2, 13 through 18, and I mentioned this just a moment ago, reference this. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off. Now this is speaking of Gentiles and Jews, okay? The, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. So this is not talking about reconciliation between God and men at this point. It's talking about reconciliation between man and man. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one. Do you see that? Here, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. God the Father in Christ has made both one. There is one body. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Between who? Between Jew and Gentile. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Oh, there's reconciliation. He abolished the enmity of the hostility that existed. He says, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile, there's that removing of the hostility, both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So here Paul is clearly teaching that there is division between mankind, and yet it is in Christ that all of that division, all of that enmity has been abolished. And not only is that removed, but he's made us one man. Think of it like this for a moment. Even in marriages, for instance, two become one, but if there is a schism or division or if there is contention that exists between the man and his wife, even if that matter of contention is removed, it doesn't mean that they are dwelling together in unity. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily embracing or enduring or loving one another as should be the case. And so here he's saying not only that the problem has been eradicated, but that we've been made one, that we are in this unity because of the Spirit of God. As we previously, previously discovered, Paul spoke to this truth of the reconciliation between mankind through the new man we are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 again of our text. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, after Christ, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So again, simply stated, there is unity and peace of God that exists for all those who are in Jesus Christ. It is present because Christ is present. I'll ask you this question, and this should help to make sense. Are the Father and the Son at odds? Are the Father, is there contention or tension between the Father and the Son? Is there contention between the Spirit and the Father or the Spirit and the Son? No. These are, this is the triune Godhead. Three distinct personhoods, persons that co-equally 
are as one eternal divine being without any division, without any schism, without any contention, without any issues, without any problems. They are one together. And so if we are in Christ and Christ is in unity with the Father, then guess what that means? Then we are in unity with the Father. And everyone else who is in unity with, in Christ with the Father, guess what? That means we're in unity with them as well. And that's what Paul is stating here. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts the Lord. The unity that we are provided in Christ requires that we teach and admonish one another in the Word of God. I was going to say a moment ago that concerning love and charity, that we look at, all, uh, at charity and love often as an emotion or even an action, and, and some may understand it to be commitment, but the truth of the matter is often we think that love, demonstrating love, or many people think that demonstrating love is to just simply look the other way or to simply dismiss that there are problems, dismiss that there is sin, just excuse it away. No, it, love requires rebuke as well. Love is to be, there is admonishment that is part of love. There is ex- exhortation that's part of love. There is um, rebuke that's part of love, instruction that's part of love, encouragement and comfort that's part of love. It, it's not all in a negative, it's not all a negative sense, but there's also this negative and positive that is all part of this one thing that is love. Again, just to emphasize that truth in the book of Hebrews, we're told, are we not? Whom the Lord loveth, he, he chastens, he corrects, he instructs. Is that not love? It's saying those whom God loves are chastened, and that is even one of the evidences of God's love in your life in reality. So there's exhortation, instruction, admonition that is all a part of love. Now, we are to do so in love, in proper context of the teaching of Scripture, and we are to do so with grace, but we are to do so all the same. And that is often totally excused. The unity we are provided requires that there is teaching and admonition to one another. Such unity in the Spirit is not something, again, we produce or manufacture, but this Unity is, the, is something which we have been given stewardship over as the body of Christ. Again, Ephesians 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The verb endeavoring, it literally means to be zealous or to be eager. So as believers in Christ, we are to eagerly keep. The word keep, it means observe, and the implication is to maintain or preserve. So we are to eagerly, we are to zealously maintain and preserve the unity of the Spirit that we've been given in the bond of peace. Meaning, as much as is possible, we are to live peaceably with all men. That's not always possible. But as much as is possible, we are to do so without compromise. Let me say it to you like this, and this, isn't, this is not necessarily dealing with the word peace, but it's dealing with the truth of peace. Paul stated that we are to... Teach the truth in love. Teach the truth. Teaching the truth in love. And so if we are to teach the truth in love, it's interesting that those two statements are within one verse, emphasizing that teaching is to be out of this love of God in Christ. And why it's interesting 
is due to the fact that most people, honestly, they may not, they may not this way or may not explain it this way, but many people demonstrate it this way, that their view of that verse is as a pendulum that is swinging, where you have teaching or truth, teaching the truth in love. You have teaching the truth, and then you have love, as though you've got one side over here teaching the truth and one side that is love. And too often what happens is that you have people who commit themselves to teaching the truth. And many times those individuals, they may be faithful in teaching or communicating truth, danger for them to become one-sided in that and become very harsh and not deal much with people with, with much grace or in God's love. And then you have the other side of this where people are just, it's all about love, 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 love. And they won't rebuke or exhort or admonish anything. And so it's like this on one side or the other. But it isn't interesting that Scripture teaches, declares to us, mandates that we as believers teach the truth in love. You can teach truth without compromising love. In fact, you can teach truth while loving someone. And I would even venture to say, if you're doing so submitted to the Spirit of God in humility, if you are teaching truth, it is because you love. It's because you love God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's because you love the truth of God's Word. And it's because you have a love for those to whom you speak truth to. But there's also that danger of the flesh not dying to self and becoming heady and high-minded. Remember, knowledge puffeth up. Now, that's not an excuse to not continue to grow in wisdom and knowledge, but it is that we are to live in submission to the Spirit of God, exercising the knowledge that we have learned, which is wise or wisdom. The difference between, one of the differences, just to summarize, maybe not limited, or this is not all-inclusive or exhaustive, but for one to truly have knowledge is not for one to truly have wisdom. But if one truly has wisdom, they do have knowledge, and it is an exercising of that knowledge that demonstrates this one is wise. Because we're not wise in our own feet, we're not wise of our own selves or in ourselves. So how can we be wise? We are to be wise in Christ, in the truth of God's word. But knowledge alone puffeth up. When we become more knowledgeable, when we become, uh, when we become more learned, if we are not submitted to the Spirit of God and exercising those, the truth of that knowledge, then we become very proud and arrogant and condescending in reality in many cases. So teaching it is not a dichotomy, but rather it is one statement. We are to teach the truth in love, not teach the truth or love, but rather teach the truth in love, out of this love. So Paul is explaining that although the unity of the Spirit is provided by the presence of God's Spirit, as the new man, we are responsible to eagerly, eagerly preserve with zeal the unity by putting to death the deeds of the old man. Now, zeal itself, again, we are to be eager in preserving the unity and zealous in doing so. But let me warn you about zeal as well. Something I told my children as they were growing up many times, I said, and I had to learn this myself, that zeal must be tempered by wisdom. Zeal is wonderful, but there needs to be wisdom. 
baptism accompanied with zeal, or you'll end up with a zealot. And that's not a good thing in and of itself at all. Verse 16 goes on to say, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Word is translated from the Greek word logos here, and it's not always that, but it is in this case, which means message or word. And to dwell is to live in, and richly means abundantly. So Paul is exhorting the church at Colossae to live abundantly in the message and wisdom of Christ. Isn't that interesting? To live in the message of Christ. I've said this to you many times, and it's very important we recognize this. You don't need me to formulate some message to preach. You need the message of Christ. We are to live in His message, in His truth. Verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teaching means to instruct. Admonishing is to admonish, to instruct, but it implies warning or reprimanding. And as we have seen in our study of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Paul's epistle to Colossians has many parallels. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Both these epistles provide instruction by Paul for the church to engage personally and corporately in singing to one another as well as we rejoice inwardly and praise unto the Lord. And this instruction is not given for the purpose of self-exaltation or, or neither is it given to display one's talent or one's gift, but it is intended to serve as a means for the Holy Spirit to minister His grace within His body. When we sing together, we should never come to sing together to impress. We should never come to sing together or before each other to, uh, for self-exaltation. We should never do so for men's applause or men's praise, ever. Neither should we preach for that reason, nor do anything for that reason. <laughs> As he goes on to say in verse 17, let's skip ahead for just a moment. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name and the authority, the power of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. While he mentions each of these songs, I want to just briefly define them for you, and we will finish this this morning. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The focus of this verse has often been placed on the difference, whether it be in Ephesians or Colossians, or what differentiates between the three types of songs which Paul mentions within this verse, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Much too often, emphasis is placed on these three things. They are important, and they have distinctions. And we need to recognize that. But the emphasis of what Paul is stating in Ephesians and Colossians is not concerning the, what, that which differentiates between these different songs that he mentions. Psalms. What are psalms? Well, psalms of praise. Think of the book of Psalms itself. Hymns. Songs that possess religious content. It's often been said that we sing hymns to him, to the Lord. Spiritual songs. Songs which are a result of a life filled with the Spirit. I think that's kind of self-explanatory, is it not? Whenever he says spiritual songs, they are spiritual in nature, which doesn't just mean they have spiritual lyrics, but rather it is a spirit-filled life which is singing these truths. And while each of these three types of songs mentioned, again, have importance, 
this list of the types of songs mentioned by Paul is not truly the emphasis of Paul's instruction. Psalms. The psalms can be easily recognized by the book of Psalms itself within the Old Testament. And throughout the Psalms, the writer expresses praise to God for His goodness, for His mercy, for His deliverance, for His faithfulness. And the choice to sing psalms is not limited to repeating passages of Scripture, though it definitely includes those. It also can include singing from Scripture. And so to sing psalms is to sing praise among one another unto the Lord. Then you have hymns that are mentioned. While hymns can be defined as songs that possess religious content, as I briefly mentioned a moment ago, the religious content mentioned is that which is defined from a biblical perspective. So in other words, be careful here. Just because a song has religious words, if it is not biblically sound, it is not a hymn. And there are many songs today that are built simply upon religious jargon that has nothing to do with biblical truth. And then spiritual songs. And the third type or manner of song mentioned here is spiritual songs, and it is noticeably connected with spiritual songs sung or spoken one to another within the body of Christ as a direct result of lives that are spirit-filled. So as we sing to ourselves spiritual songs, let us do it to ourselves personally, unto the Lord, to ourselves, and one to another. Then he says, verse 16 in concluding, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Grace implies here to rejoice and to be glad, to have gratitude. And this is something to be personally done within the lives of those who are living in the resurrected power of the new man is in Christ. Let us sing unto ourselves. By the way, in many cases, it may be that we are the only ones who want to hear ourselves sing. But let us sing unto ourselves and then sing one to another as it's been often said, the Scripture declares, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Not everyone can carry a tune, and not everyone sounds as good as the guy next to them. But let me tell you, when you see someone who is singing, and you hear someone, and you're exposed to people that are coming with gratitude unto the Lord, and lifting their voices unto Him, and, and, and exhorting one another, and edifying one another, that is something that encourages and strengthens the body of Christ. So this is something that is personal, but also public. Paul commands, put on the new man with charity and let peace and the word of Christ, the message of Christ in which you dwell and he who dwells in you abound in your life. Let the peace of God rule and control you. And it's this simple. Let me say to you like this. It, this is another example of some of the foolish attempts at prayer that we often pray. God, just give me peace. You want peace? It's very simple. It's, if you're in Christ, you have God's peace. So then how do you experience God's peace? Let the peace of God rule in you, Paul is saying. Don't ask for peace. Isn't it interesting? Don't pray for peace. Do you see what he says? Let the peace of God rule. So how do we let the peace of God rule? It is foolish for us to start praying, oh God, give us peace. We're in such turmoil. Give us peace. If we are not submitted to the preeminent Christ, because we experience that peace as we are submitted to Him who has provided such peace. Then he says, not only let the peace of God, but let the Word of Christ, the message of Christ, dwell in you with all knowledge, with all wisdom. 
We are to live in the wisdom of God that is in Christ. And this is part of that wisdom. We have the knowledge, oh, we have, we have the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. We have unity because of the Spirit of God that lives in us. We are dead and crucified with Christ. And now we have a new man, which is Christ, who is all and in you all that are believers in him. Here's the knowledge. This is the truth of the matter. Appropriate that let this peace of God rule in you and control you by submitting to him, by living in the truth of the knowledge, by demonstrating wisdom, by living in the truth of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let live in the truth of God's word abundantly as he has made provision for us to do so. And when we do, we experience this peace and this unity and this love that cannot be compared. It's unparalleled to anything else that man may attempt to muster up, produce, or manufacture. So let the peace of God control your life. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in knowledge and all wisdom, living therein, appropriating the provision through submission to He who lives in you. Let's stand together in prayer. Father.